Chapter 53 The Stars and Nejim In the name of God, the most compassionate, the most merciful. This chapter was revealed during the second year of the Prophet's mission, before the public proclamation of Islam, and when only a small number of people were even aware that he was a prophet. This chapter addresses such questions in a general and oblique manner. What are these words that the Prophet is uttering? From where does he receive them? Is someone teaching him? These same topics resurface throughout the Quran, gradually becoming more clear in its later chapters. The verses of this chapter have exceedingly difficult and complex meanings, for the phenomenon of revelation, as well as many of the other concepts and terms invoked in the Quran, are fundamentally difficult to discuss. Therefore, we should not expect such momentous questions to be answered with full clarity in just one sitting. Ultimately, no human words can completely elucidate these ideas and make them comprehensible. All we can expect is an approximate idea based upon metaphors, allusions, and allegories, because the essence and reality to which these verses refer are not directly accessible to us. By the star, when it falls. God opens with an oath sworn by a setting or falling star. This is a strange star indeed, for it means a star falling into itself. However, we might wonder, when a star falls, where exactly does it fall to? Things fall to the ground because they are affected by gravity. So how can a star fall when it is in outer space? But why does God swear by such a star? This will be discussed later. In any event, this oath is taken to call the attention of the pre-Islamic Arabs to the fact that Your companion has neither strayed, nor is he deluded. In other words, the Prophet is speaking with full awareness and understanding of the words he is relaying from God. Notice that instead of stating Muhammad, God invokes the relationship between him and his audience to remind them that the Prophet has always lived among them, that they have known him since he was born, and that they are familiar with him. God asks them, do you now accuse him of raving like a madman or of going astray? To go astray can also mean that someone has been fooled or misled. Thus, God is proclaiming that these are not the words of such a person, but that the words being spoken are completely true and utterly genuine. And furthermore, that they are not even Muhammad's words. For, nor does he speak out of his own desire. Some thinkers have suggested that the Prophet was a genius, 
that these supposedly revealed passages merely opened his mind and provided profound assistance in composing the Quran. In other words, they are nothing but inspirations coming from his own mind and thoughts. The present verse makes it clear that this was not the case because it is nothing other than a revelation conveyed to him. All of these words are part of a divine revelation that is dictated to the Prophet word by word. As he is nothing more than a passive recipient, his only role is to faithfully recount them in the same form that he received them. The revelation that prophets receive is not imparted to them via everyday human speech and sounds, but by Archangel Gabriel via supernatural means. God has not yet told the Meccans who is bringing these revelations and how they are sent, because at this point his priority is twofold, to dispel their misunderstandings and to prepare themselves to receive a discourse that is not of human origin. So who brings these words to the Prophet? God answers, It was taught to him by an angel with mighty powers. Taught to him indicates that the Prophet is not merely an ignorant broadcaster of words that he did not understand, but rather a man who learned their meaning or meanings before conveying them. God does not identify his teacher, but instead describes this entity as an intense form of energy and power. Not only does this being have preternatural powers, but it also enjoys an eminent and important station with God. As I mentioned above, these verses were revealed at the beginning of the mission's second year so that Muhammad's contemporaries could gradually learn and understand the concepts and ideas that were being revealed through him. The name Archangel Gabriel has not yet been brought to the fore. Therefore, this verse provides only a very general description of the one bringing the revelation. Endowed with great wisdom and was settled. Some interpret this mighty powers has great wisdom whose knowledge penetrates everything. According to this interpretation, this wise and intelligent force penetrates all that exists. However, I would suggest that it refers to a power or a force distinguished by the fact it permeates and passes through all things, just like gravity does. To settle, here, means to dominate and encompass something. Therefore, this teacher settles upon the Prophet's mind and acts as indicated. When he was on the uppermost horizon. Horizon refers to that line at which, if you are standing in the desert or on the beach, looking out across a calm ocean without any obstructions, 
the land appears to touch the sky. It resembles a border between heaven and earth. The force known as Gabriel appeared to Muhammad in an extremely exalted and sublime horizon. This meeting took place on the very highest horizon, on a very elevated mental and spiritual level. Then he approached and came closer. Just as waves of energy from distant galaxies enter Earth's atmosphere, so too did Gabriel approach the Prophet. It seems as though there was a potentiality, a readiness, or receptivity found in Muhammad that opened him up to the divine power and caused that power to draw near to him. Therefore, both of them approached each other. Until he was two bow lengths away, or even closer. Commentators have advanced various theories to explain this verse. This vocabulary was familiar to the Prophet's ordinary and uneducated contemporaries. For one method of measurement was the distance of an arrow's arc or a bow's length. Whatever the exact meaning, it clearly indicates that the distance between them was no more than a meter or two. However, such material ideas as distance cannot be taken literally when discussing such spiritual realities. In any case, these are all symbols and allusions designed to help us grasp these higher realities. And he revealed to God's servant what he revealed. This verse means that he either revealed to his servant what he revealed, or revealed to him what needed to be revealed. God speaks in a highly symbolic and mysterious fashion, as if to say that the words relayed by the prophet come from a world whose nature is beyond human comprehension. The heart did not lie about what it saw. This verse removes any possibility that the Prophet doubted what he had experienced or would utter any falsehood, for his heart did not err in its vision. The Quran's assertion that the Prophet's heart did not deceive him means that the innermost core of his consciousness received this knowledge and understood it perfectly. That there was no chance that his eyes could have deceived him or that he could have misheard it. Are you going to dispute with him what he saw with his own eyes? Is it possible to argue with an eyewitness about what he or she claims to have seen? Is it not pointless to argue with someone about something of which you have no direct experience? Obviously, sight is not to be understood in its everyday sense, but rather in the sense of his heart and soul perceiving something directly and he certainly saw him another time. When was this second time that the Prophet had seen him? 
Some say that this took place during the night of ascent, or in the cave of Hera, where the prophet received the first revelation. In any case, the verse indicates that the sacred and spiritual connection experienced by the prophet was repeated. But where? By the farthest lot, Sudr tree. Once again, the farthest lot tree is a special Quranic expression that must be understood symbolically, as the actual reality to which it refers is beyond our ability to comprehend directly. Sidr refers to a tree found in Arabia, one that is also very common throughout dry and arid climates. God spoke in the language of shepherds, camel herders, and desert-dwelling Arabs who commonly use natural features such as trees as landmarks. As the Sidr tree is very leafy and gives plenty of shade, they would rest beneath its branches to seek shelter from the burning heat of the midday sun. For shepherds, the farthest lot tree or the last lot tree marked the end of the desert and the beginning of a pasture for grazing. Therefore, the Quran uses this term metaphorically to approximate the apex of the Prophet's spiritual journey. We are told that he retreated to the cave of Hira for one month every year to engage in deep meditation and contemplation. We do not know how Muhammad pondered or exactly what he pondered upon. In any case, his spiritual exercises raised his soul to such a high level that it became exposed to divine inspiration and revelation. Near the Garden of Restfulness Close to that station is the Paradise of Tranquility, the most sublime heaven and a level of spiritual ascent so high that one cannot possibly conceive of a higher level. When the lot tree was covered by that which covered it. Some commentators have said that this is a great tree located near God's throne. Of course, such descriptions are symbolic and metaphorical. His sight never wavered, nor did it overreach. The Prophet saw the very things that his heart had witnessed previously, all of which were absolutely real. He saw some of the greatest signs of his Lord. In the cave of Hira, he may have been contemplating on the nature of the cosmos, the human being, and the ultimate fate of humanity when he received these revelations from God. The greatest signs of his Lord may point to the system that directs the cosmos and the divine agents within it, such that the higher up the chain of cause and effect you go, the closer you get to the first cause. This is what the Prophet achieved when, in his own spiritual journey, he gradually received spirituality thought, and reflection 
from the sacred realm. Thus, the level of one's understanding can develop and increase to the point where it witnesses God's greatest signs in everything. Until now, this chapter has dealt with the nature of the divine speech revealed to the prophet. In a general sense, it says that these utterances are neither erroneous nor fanciful and do not emanate from Muhammad. It then provides a general description of the angel who bears this revelation to him, but does not name it. Now, the discourse changes course to address how the Meccans viewed angels. Have you considered Al-Lat and Al-Uzza? Do you really know what you are worshipping? The pre-Islamic Arabs venerated the female idols Lot and Uzza. In fact, Lot was taken from Allah and Uzza was taken from God's name, Al-Aziz. And the third one, Al-Manat. The Quran says that one of God's great angels brings his message to the Prophet and teaches it to him. Now, it asks the idolaters, what do you claim that Lot, Uzza, and Manat teach you, and how do they communicate their messages to you? What have you seen from these idols of wood and stone that causes you to worship them? Do they play any role in your life? We should be asking the same questions today about the idols of our own time. Are you to have the male and he the female? The pre-Islamic Arabs believed that angels were female. This belief may have existed since ancient times, as in European paintings, angels are commonly portrayed as winged humans with feminine features. But as they are not made of matter, angels have no gender. And yet, belief in female angels remains widespread. The Meccans also believed that God had appointed his daughters to manage the cosmos. Thus, they did not worship these idols, who were merely physical representations of these heavenly beings, but the angels that they associated with them. The context of this verse is not a discussion about preferring sons to daughters for God is merely pointing out their erroneous beliefs by asking how could they claim that God's children were female when they only wanted sons because daughters were viewed as a liability. That indeed was an unfair division. Here, God answers them on the basis of their own faulty logic. These are nothing but names that you and your fathers have invented. God has sent no warrant for them. These people merely follow guesswork and the whims of their souls, even though guidance has come to them from their Lord. In ancient times, people believed in whole pantheons of deities. There was a god or goddess for the sea, war, anger, love, for everything, 
but these deities were nothing more than names made up by their ancestors, which they continue to repeat today. God has given no evidence or proof for such beings or the power they supposedly wield over human lives. In short, despite their followers' belief and reverence, these deities are nothing more than figments of human imagination. But now that guidance has come from their Lord, why do they continue to pursue these handed-down superstitions and conjectures? not to mention their own inclinations and desires. Is man to have everything he wishes for? Do you think that people should be given whatever they want? Is it right that they should just chase after their own desires, whims, and fancies? Is this really the sole reason for the creation of a person? When the present life and the life to come belong only to God. You received life due to the cosmic system that God instituted, and your life persists within that cosmic system. Your whims and desires have no impact upon it at all. And how many angels are in the heavens whose intercession, Shafa'a, will be of no use until God gives permission to whom He wills and accepts. It is important to clarify some points related to the Quranic view of intercession, shafa'a, for this term now means something very different than it did to the Prophet's contemporaries. In the Quran, shafa'a, refers exclusively to the intercession of angels, never for that of the Prophet or the Imams. As the Prophet's opponents categorically rejected the idea of an afterlife, why would they believe in the intercession of a Prophet or Imam on the non-existent Day of Judgment, which is how intercession is thought of today? Given that they also completely rejected his role as God's messenger, let alone as an intercessor, their understanding of Shafa'a is utterly unlike our own. So what did the idolaters believe about intercession? They perceived their idols as material representations of God's angels, as their intercessors with God. They believed in God and that these angels' intercession could repel calamities like drought, illness, or an enemy's attack, and acquire favors for them, provided that their sacrifice was accepted. In other words, they were looking to physical salvation today as opposed to salvation in the hereafter. The Prophet's enemies admitted God's existence but held the mistaken view that they could connect with him only through his daughters being angels. However, this approach cuts them off from direct relationship that all of us enjoy with our Lord. The second point to bear in mind is that we think of Shafa'a today as referring to the intercession of human beings, not angels, and in the hereafter, 
not in this world. Also, pay attention to what God says about the angels whose intercession will be of no use to you in this world. How can this verse speak about intercession in the hereafter to those who rejected to believe in the hereafter? Another piece of evidence that supports this reading is what comes next. Until God gives permission to whom he wills and accepts. The system directing the cosmos operates by God's command, which means that its laws cannot be altered by intercession. These forces or angels operate by God's permission, meaning that they obey His laws and systems. Therefore, any force to which we can appeal must fall within the scope of this divine governing pattern, meaning that God has approved it. These important points are significant in understanding Quranic concept of intercession or shafa'a. Those who do not believe in the hereafter give the angels female names. See how clearly the Quran says that these people do not believe in the hereafter. If that is their attitude, then of course they cannot believe in intercession related to the hereafter. They have no knowledge to base this on. They merely follow guesswork. Guesswork is of no value against truth. However, they are not the only ones who follow their conjectures. Today, most people do so, such as those who believe the myth that Jesus is the Son of God. According to them, the original sin committed by Adam and Eve caused them to be expelled from paradise. God, wanting to cleanse all of their descendants from this original sin, decided that the best way would be to send his own son to be brutally tortured and crucified. By this act, everyone who accepts this sacrifice on their behalf would be saved and allowed to enter paradise. This erroneous belief has held sway over a large portion of humanity's minds for almost two millennia. Today, despite all our advances in science and culture, many people still believe and claim that if you have the love of Jesus in your heart, your salvation is assured. Can any reasonable person accept this? In reality, such beliefs are nothing more than man-made doctrines, and their adherents follow nothing but suppositions. And guessworks are of no help when it comes to seeking the truth. So, O Prophet, turn away from him who turns away from our remembrance and who desires nothing but the life of this world. When people become attached to and want nothing beyond this world, there is no point in calling them toward God. When all they want is a life of ease, to eat, drink and be happy, and desire nothing more than material comforts and enjoyments, you cannot force them to think about the afterlife. 
their knowledge does not go beyond that. Your Lord knows best who strays from his path and who follows guidance. This is the limit of their intellectual maturity. In fact, they will never reach a real maturity of thought because pursuing only that in which they find enjoyment entraps them in an infantile way of thinking. One could even say that the depth of their understanding is reflected by the extent of their ambition. God knows best who is guided and who is not, and the Quran proclaims that those who have no desire to be guided, who are content as long as their life is comfortable and satisfying, are to be left alone. And so, do not trouble yourself with them or become involved in their affairs. Every person's level of understanding will lead them to the outcome that befits his or her level of understanding, and God knows best what this is. Everything that we have discussed so far in this chapter goes back to the first verse oath. By the star when it falls. All of this is meant to prepare the ground for us to understand what it means for a star to fall. And more importantly, what does a falling star have to do with a person's whims? When a star falls, it actually falls into itself. It implodes and collapses inward when a star runs out of its fuel, hydrogen. Meanwhile, in sharp contrast with the extreme contraction of the star's core, its outer layers actually expand and puff up, at which point the star grows to several thousand times its usual size and turns into a red giant, and the inner core becomes known as a white dwarf, reflecting its size and color. Alternatively, a star that has expanded beyond a certain size will explode as a brilliant supernova. The human realm is also sometimes illuminated by brilliant flashes of light. There comes a discourse on the phenomena of prophethood and revelation, which can be compared to a brilliant explosion of light into the human realm. A ray of truth spread throughout the world, a truth so great that God swore an oath by it. Everything in the heavens and earth belong to God alone, that he may repay those who do evil according to their deeds, and that he may reward those who do good with goodness. The Quran repeatedly emphasizes this idea, for it is one of the central pillars of monotheism. Everyone will come face to face with the results of his or her actions in the hereafter. God placed the heavens and earth at humanity's disposal so that we may, through our own efforts and activities, attain mastery over the natural world and take possession of the material realm. As for those who avoid major sins and shameful deeds, only falling into lesser offenses, 
then surely your Lord is ample in forgiveness. He is best aware of you from the time when he created you from dust and you were hidden in the bellies of your mothers. Therefore, ascribe not purity unto yourselves. He is best aware of him who wards off. Who are those who avoid major sins and shameful deeds? Avoid appears in the present tense to denote that their behavior in this regard is continuous, for this is how they live their lives. Those who avoid being narrow-minded, selfish, and egotistical actually put the very root and wellspring of sin aside. As these are the root of all sins, for every sin emanates from such attitudes. Lesser offenses means sins that are minor in severity and few in number. Those who sin but then feel troubled and ashamed have not yet become accustomed to sinning and wrongdoing. However, remember that the more a sin is repeated, the less unpleasant it seems, and eventually it becomes a habit that no longer troubles the person. In any case, some people contend that if we just focus on avoiding the major sins, God will overlook the minor ones. Human beings are made from dust and conceived by our parents' seeds. God is aware of all of the stages of human growth and development, of a human being's progress from nothingness to existence. In short, he knows us better than we could ever know ourselves. Notice that God says he knows who has more taqwa. So long as the human being can exercise self-control, whether in a state of financial hardship or affluence, and control his or her anger and carnal desires, the hope of salvation remains. The Quran says that God knows best which one of you is better at restraining his or her soul from base desires. Therefore, you should never consider yourself pure and free from fault. Did you, O Muhammad, observe him who turned away from Islam? The reference is to the one who pays no heed to these words and turns away. He only gave a little and then withholds. In other words, this person turns away from both the truth and other people. Those who are so self-centered that they refuse to help those in need, in effect, have turned their back on them. Those who rarely help others and hoard their wealth will not be saved. Does he have knowledge of the unseen that he can see? Do such people perceive realities that others do not? Those who spend nothing in charity and feel no inclination or need to help their fellow human beings must know something or have seen something that others have not. One explanation for their ignorance is their assumption that this world will never have a reckoning. 
or has he not been informed of what was written in the books of Moses? Do these stingy people know something that others do not? Something that makes them immune to these rules? Or are they merely unaware of the earlier prophet's teachings? In other words, the prophet's teachings, like Moses, are nothing new, for all prophets have taught the same thing. And Abraham, who fulfilled his duty? According to the chronology of the Quran's revelation, this is the first verse sent down about Prophet Abraham. His scripture has been referenced twice, but not his name. Note that the first quality with which he is invested is fulfillment, meaning that he fulfilled his mission by delivering and acting upon it. Quran calls him an imam, for humanity. An imam means an exemplar, a model for others. Abraham received this distinction because he did exactly what God told him to do and thereby attained an extremely lofty spiritual rank. Abraham's creed is the religion of Tawheed, monotheism of which he founded upon absolute truthfulness and complete submission to God. The Quran presents Abraham as the perfect human being. In fact, the annual rite of Hajj and rituals perfectly encapsulate Abraham's obedience and devotion to God, in which we must come to better know the man himself. However, the sad fact is that today we rarely give any thought to this rite's latent symbolism or remember that its associated rituals are a manifestation of the original religion of Tawheed. So, to what are these two verses referring? In reply, the following verses lay out 11 very important points, one after the other with the particle that repeatedly appearing at the beginning of each verse. That no soul shall bear the burden of another. First, each person, without exception, is responsible only for his or her own sins. The Quran states this fact which has been proclaimed to humanity ever since Abraham's time. Only you are responsible, not your mother or father, not your people or your clan, only you. Even Prophet Noah could not save his wayward son, for God rejected his intercession. Note that God does not beat around the bush, even with his prophets. Remember Prophet Lut's wife, who perished along with her husband's people. And yet we continue to use every trick in the book to reassure ourselves we will be sent directly to paradise in the hereafter. Here, the Quran announces that according to Abraham, no one will bear the burden of another's sins. That a human shall have nothing but what he strives for. Second, we will be given only what we have earned. 
that the fruit of his striving will soon be seen, that he will be fully rewarded for it. Third, we will soon see the reality of our actions and on what we have spent our life. That the final end is with your Lord. Fourth, but ultimately, where will we go? Toward that from whence we came into this world by His will, namely, to the Lord. Everything will return to Him, for that is where its end lies. That it is He who makes people laugh and weep. Fifth, this similitude means that all happiness and sadness should be attributed only to His will. For instance, when the people are presented with the record of their deeds, some will laugh and some will cry. On the other hand, maybe this verse means that all of our inner thoughts and feelings, from which happiness, laughter, and sadness, tears, spring, are really in God's hands. For each feeling depends upon God's will for your life. Therefore, if you want a happy and contented life, seek it from God. That it is He who gives death and life. Sixth, death and life, two processes in the cosmos that never stop, are also in His hands. That He created the two spouses, the male and the female. Seventh, he created the two genders, male and female, which are found in humanity and many of the world's creatures. This reality is a relatively new phenomenon. In terms of our planet's overall age, one that has caused the process of natural evolution to accelerate dramatically. The verse says that God is the originator of this phenomenon from a drop of fluid when emitted. This fluid allows the genetic material to be combined from the male and female of a species, a process that leads to increased biodiversity through the production of countless genetic combinations. That he will undertake the second creation. Eighth. The second creation refers to a new cosmos that is yet to be made, namely the hereafter, God's remaking of the present universe. That it is He who gives wealth and contentment. Ninth, He alone gives prosperity, bestows wealth, and fulfills our needs. Our Lord provides all that we need to exist, air, food, and a thousand other things with His blessings, whether they are short-term or long-term, in this world or in the hereafter. That He is the Lord of Sirius. Tenth, Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky is naturally the first one to become visible in the evening. The Arabs commonly sighted this star during the summer. Now, it is more frequently sighted during the winter. 
When we see serious light, we are seeing what it was like 10 years ago because it takes that long for its light to reach us. Consider what wonders God has placed in the cosmos from billions of years ago that we are only just beginning to understand today. Once again, recall that this chapter began with the oath, by the star when it falls. Today, advances in astronomy enable us to witness the astonishing phenomena taking place in the vastness of space, events that earlier generations could not even imagine. Therefore, do not think that God is merely your Lord or the Lord of your planet. He is also the Lord of Sirius and of the entire cosmos that he destroyed the former tribe of Odd. Eleventh, the implication here is that if you, the Prophet's contemporaries, continue to deny and to go astray, your fate will be the same as of those earlier disobedient people. Do not think that this means God will oppress you. On the contrary, the cosmos has been created in such a way that you will suffer the consequences of your actions. Remember what happened to the people of Od and the tribe of Thamud he did not spare. The people of Thamud also perished. The Quran relates the stories of these two peoples in detail later on, as well as what happened to them and before them the people of Noah. Surely they were more unjust and rebellious. Noah, who preached for 950 years, opened the door for them to be guided. However, they did not heed him. And he brought down the ruined cities of the people of Lut, so that the ruins covered them up. This is an allusion to Sodom and Gomorrah, which were turned upside down by an earthquake and volcanic eruption. Thousands were buried beneath the burning ash and molten lava. Then, which of the bounties of God can you deny? These accounts of earlier events, which are intended to give you cause for reflection, are actually a blessing for you. This prophet is a warner, like the former warners. Muhammad is the last of these messengers who have been sent throughout history to warn humanity. His religion is just another link in the chain of the divine religion conveyed by his predecessors. The imminent hour has drawn near. The human being's resurrection is near at hand. Although in our eyes it seems far away, one day our life will run out. For each and every breath that a man takes is just another step toward death. Therefore, we are already and always drawing closer to our death, and one day we will meet it. However long the road might seem, even if it lasts for a hundred years, 
It is not equivalent to even the blink of an eye when compared to the limitless time of eternity stretching beyond our death. The eminent is one of the other names for the resurrection. Being prisoners of time, we might not think that it is close at hand. On the other hand, given that God is the creator of time and thus is not bound by it, he sees the resurrection as near. None besides God can disclose it. On the day of resurrection, God will unveil the problems and punishments that result from the actions of human beings. However, disclose here can also mean to relieve someone of something. And who, besides God, is capable of enveloping us with forgiveness? Marvel then at this statement. And you laugh and do not weep. While you waste your time in vanities. Are you not concerned about the day of resurrection and being held accountable for your deeds? Will you occupy yourself with falsehood and diversion? Just as some people turn up their noses out of arrogance and pride in this world and walk with their chins held high, drunk on power. Here, God asks them, Do you honestly think that your actions entitle you to such pride? Even with all your sins, do you still regard yourself so highly? Rather, prostrate yourselves before God and serve or worship Him. Of course, prostration here does not merely mean placing one's head on the ground. This is a universal symbol, or else it would be impossible to speak of the mountains, the sun, the moon, the stars, and all of the beings in the cosmos as bowing down to God. Thus, to prostrate to God means to serve and live in harmony with the cosmic order. To worship means to place the entirety of your existence at His service. Therefore, prostration means to pay full attention to God to act according to his edicts and teachings, to submit to his will, and to obey him in all situations.